0: Bismillah, in Alhamdulillah, was salat salam ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, amma bad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, we have gathered here to learn the deen of Allah and to earn the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I welcome you all to this unique, first of its kind, one day seminar, Hope in the Face of Hardship, organized by Kalima Islamic Center. Where we would learn from the lessons from the trials of the two great prophets by our two esteemed speakers, Ustad Muhammad Tim Humble and Ustad Abdurrahman Hassan, inshallah.
1: Kalima was founded
0: in 2007 and is managed by a board of Emirati nationals, an executive committee, and a staff over a dozen and full time employees. Kalima operates based on charitable donations from individuals, organizations, and governmental bodies. Kalima Islamic Center is a non-profit organization officially registered under the Islamic Affairs and Charitable Activities Department, Government of Dubai. Kalima's main area of focus are preaching Islam to non muslims orientation and education of Muslim converts, and offering classes in various Islamic subjects to Muslims in Dubai. Kalima also organizes and hosts recreational and social events. Kalima is a place where you can learn Islam in your language. The mission is to propagate the pristine teaching of Islam to Muslims and non-Muslims in Dubai in the most effective and appropriate way. The vision is very clear. To have the souls of the nation connected to the Creator. Allah the Almighty says in the Quran, for indeed with hardship will be ease. We cannot go through life without going through the hardships. They are inevitable in the life of a Muslim as they come to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As the test of our faith, however, our sole objective must be to pass through the hardships and get closer to our creator. But how does one overcome them? It is only possible by gaining the right knowledge on how to do so. Inshallah, by the end of the seminar, we will learn from the two stories of the Prophet Yunus alayhi the supplications he made during the times of distress, in which Allah has promised to relieve the distress of every believer. The Prophet of Ayyub alayhi salam, his hardships, why he was one of Allah's most sincere worshippers, To reflect upon oneself and assess our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How to deal with prolonged hardships without losing hope in Allah. The tricks and the traps of the shaitan during hardship and how he makes us despair the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The role sin plays in causing hardships and fundamental principles concerning them. Let's make the most of this opportunity to learn and earn the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hardship through the stories of the prophets. This seminar is out, outlined in a very different format uh, other than the regular Kalima seminars. We have shifted the timing, starting post asr This seminar is constructed into two halves. The first half will be the lesson from the story of Yunus salam, and the explanation of the dua of distress, which will be done by Ustad Muhammad Tim Humble. The second part will be the lessons from the of, uh, life of Prophet Ayyub a.s. which will be done by Abdul Rahman Hassan. I'll just go through the by the brief timing. We start the session now and end at uh, Azan uh, Maghrib. And we start immediately after Maghrib and go to Isha Azan for the first session. And The second session starts uh, post-Isha, inshallah. Let me just run through a quick uh, class etiquette. If I could humbly request you to please Switch off your mobile phones or put them on silent. Just make that effort so you know we, we don't disturb the whole class. Avoid unnecessary movements in and out of the class. And please refrain from personal audio and video recording because uh, we are doing this, the recording and it will be shared uh, in the due course, inshallah. There are special workbooks made for you guys. If anybody has not picked up from the registration table, they can do so. Please make the best use of it. It's got space specially made for you to uh, make your notes, Inshallah. With today's schedule, we'll be running a bit tight on the timeline. So it, I would require all of your efforts to go in to please make it back on the time prescribed so we can make the best use of the time we have on hand. Alhamdulillah, nearly everybody knows our Ustad, Muhammad Tim Humble. But I'll just quickly give you a brief intro for the new students. Ustad Muhammad Hambal is a graduate from the Faculty of Hadith Studies at the Islamic University of Medina. He is certified in the six recognized books of Hadith. He is a full time teacher at Kalima for the English section. Alhamdulillah, he travels around the world lecturing and delivering courses on Islamic sciences and very, and he is, Alhamdulillah, a very active da'i in the UAE. With this, I will uh, hand over to Ustad for the next session. Jazakallah khair.
2: Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa s-salatu wa salam ala abdillahi wara rasoodihi nabiyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Allahumma allimna ma yanfa'una bima allamtana wa zidana ilman ya hayu We begin as always with the praise of Allah Azza wa Jal And after praising Him with the praise that He is deserving of and the praise that He taught us to praise Him with, we send peace and blessings and salutations upon our Messenger Muhammad ﷺ and upon his family and upon his companions. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to teach us what will benefit us and to benefit us with what he teaches us and to increase us in knowledge. Before I start the, uh, the topic today, I'd like to begin with a few sort of mini introductions to various different things that we need. So the very first thing that I would like to just uh, begin with is just begin by extending my thanks first and foremost to all of you for coming giving your time to spend you know your afternoon here and your evening here and we ask Allah azza wa jalla that he makes it of benefit to us all and i would also like to extend my thanks to kalima islamic center for all of the hard work that has gone into organizing this event and likewise to the Islamic Affairs and Charitable Activities Department for their cooperation and support and so on To all of the people who have been involved in, in making this happen Because really there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes That you know, the people who come to attend the lectures, maybe not all of us appreciate how much work goes on So we really want to ask Allah Azzawajal, to place this in the scale of the good deeds of all of those people who had a share in it I want to begin with a very very small introduction which is not part of the workbook that you have But it's only uh, maybe five minutes so inshallah ta'ala it will not harm On the topic of being tested And since this is a topic that myself and Ustad Abdurrahman are going to cover in some detail I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it now Because it's going to come throughout the, throughout the evening, little pieces about it But I just thought it's nice to just get ourselves a little bit of an overview and just orient ourselves as to where we are in the sense of a little bit about the nature of this life and the fact that we are a people who will endure hardship. As certain as it is that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and that it will rise, you know, in the morning and it sets in the evening as certain as these you know fundamental laws of the universe are as certain as this is you will also be tested you are going to go through hardship you're going to go through problems and that is something that allah Subhanahu wa Taala has told us about in so many places in the quran that i couldn't actually in this muqaddimah in this introduction i couldn't actually bring all of the places that allah mentioned because he mentioned it in so many places that we could honestly spend from now until the class finishes just talking about the places in the Qur'an in which Allah told us He would test us. But I have selected a few just to give you uh, an introduction to the topic. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala told us in Surah Al-Mulk, in the second ayah, and I think many of us know this surah, Ayyukum we can put the uh, the screen on for us, share the screen for everyone. Let me just. Yeah, it's still connected. Okay. Maybe the guys can have a look why right? it's not. Uh... And they can fix it as they go. The one who created life and death. In order to test you, this life that you live, the life and death that people experience, from among the primary purposes for which Allah Azza wa created this life, Is so that you can be tested as to which of you are best in deeds This life is a test And it is a trial And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created it in order that we be tested And since this is a primary purpose behind the life that we lead Then this tells us something it tells us if this is one of the reasons behind which Allah created this life that we live. In, then it is something you are going to experience in every aspect of your life. And although today we are primarily going to be talking about hardship, I also want to make it clear that you are not only tested in hardship. And this is a maybe a misconception that a lot of people... Don't know about Or a lot of people don't reflect upon That you are not only tested In hardship You are tested In that which is Hardship and difficult And which is Evil and so on And you are also tested in that which is good Everything good you have been given is a test and everything difficult that happens to you is a test you are tested as to every aspect of your life and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us in surah al-baqarah ayah number 214 am hasibatum an tadkhulul jannata walamma yatikum mathalul ladina khalu min qablikum do you think, or do you imagine, that you
1: will
2: enter paradise when there has yet to come to you that which came to the people who have passed away before you? They were touched with such hardship and adversity and they were shook until the point that the messenger and those who believe with him said when will the help of Allah come? Indeed, the help of Allah is near. So this tells us that we will not enter Jannah Until we are tested with hardship, and difficulties, and adversity, and problems. Under this test, even the messengers and the prophets, they experienced this test. In fact, as we are going to hear, they experienced it to a greater degree than we will experience it. But just so that you don't get in your mind, the reason I wanted to put this ayah, is so that you don't attach in your mind hardship with necessarily having low iman or being a person who is not close to Allah. Rather, hardship is something that the messengers and the prophets, salatu was salam, endured. And if they endure it, then certainly you will also endure it. And then the promise from Allah that the help of Allah azza wa is near. And Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala said also in Surah Al-Baqarah, ayah number 155, "Wa أَنَّكُمْ بِشَيْءٍ مِّنَ الْخَوْفِ وَالْجُوعِ wal مِّنَ الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْأَنفُسِ min وَبَشِّرِ amwali wal إِذَا أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَالُوا إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ asabat-hum مِن inna And we will certainly test you With something of fear and hunger And a loss of wealth A loss of life and fruits And give glad tidings to the patient Those who when they are afflicted with a calamity They say indeed we belong to Allah And to him we will return It is them that Allah's salawat Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them his blessings And his mercy and it is they who are guided. And just to highlight how this is the case of all of the Prophets, and we could have picked any of the Prophets, but just while we were in Surah Al-Baqarah, ayah number 124, Rabbuhu bi fa When Allah tested Ibrahim with certain commands, certain words, and he fulfilled them completely. So Allah Azza wa every single one of the prophets endured tests and hardships and difficulties. And if we have established that, we can briefly come to a couple of hadiths just to finish off the setting of this sort of introduction. A hadith that is narrated by Imam Ibn Majah and others from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik رضي الله عنه, that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said عظم الجزاء مع عظم البلاء وإن الله إذا أحب قوما ابتلاهم فمن رضي فله الرضاء ومن سخط فله السخط. The greatness or the greatest of rewards comes from the greatest of trials.
1: The greatest
2: of rewards comes from the greatest of trials. And when Allah loves a people, he tests them. And, when, and indeed, Allah, when he loves a people, he tests them. So whoever is content with that, he will earn the pleasure of Allah. And whoever is angry with that, he will earn the anger of Allah. This hadith is profound, really, when we think about it. That the greater the reward, it comes with the greater trials and tribulations and hardships. And that one of the signs of Allah loving you Is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests you And if your response to that hardship And that test is that you are content With what Allah has chosen for you Then you will earn the pleasure of Allah And if your response to that hardship And that difficulty and that trial Is that you become angry With the decree of Allah And angry with what Allah has chosen for you Then ultimately you are going to earn the anger of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And if the brothers could just restart the Wi-Fi, that is the problem. Not the. Not the problem. My final hadith, just by word of introduction, is a hadith narrated by Imam Muslim in Kitab al-Zuhd wal raqaiq in the chapter of asceticism and softening the hearts. Or in the book of asceticism and softening the hearts From The hadith of Suhaib anhu That the messenger of Allah Sallallahu wa sallam said How amazing is the situation of the believer Inna amrahu kullahu Khair Everything about his situation is good وَلَيْسَ ذَاكَ لِأَحَدٍ إِلَّا لِلْمُؤْمِنِ And this is for nobody except the believer. إِنْ أَصَابَتْهُ سَرَّاءُ شَكَرٌ فَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُ If he is afflicted by, or if he is touched by something good, he is touched by happiness and delight and ease, he gets a, something is made easy for him, he shows gratitude and this is better for him. وَإِنْ أَصَابَتْهُ ضَرَّاءُ صَبَرٌ فَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُ And if he is afflicted with a trouble or a hardship, then he is patient and this is better or this is good for him. So no matter what the situation you are in, whether it is a good situation or a bad situation, ultimately that situation is good for you if you respond with gratitude and you respond with patience. Let me see if I can get that screen to come back on. There we go. Okay, we can put that this on now. Sure. Good. That was just a little introduction, just a small introduction, and the purpose of that small introduction was just to get us thinking about the topic of hardship. In fact, what we're going to do now is cover in quite some detail. Between myself and between Ustaz Abdurrahman, we're going to cover in some detail the lessons and the benefits that we take from these two prophets, Prophet Yunus and Prophet Ayyub alayhim as-salatu But I just thought that this Muqaddimah, this introduction, would just be something to get you thinking, get your mind working, get you reflecting, get you thinking about it, get you involved in the topic. As we enter into the, you know, the topic at hand. Now, in terms of my part of the lecture today, or my part of the seminar today, is relating to the Nun, to Yunus, who is known by his uh, his uh, his nickname or his uh, the, the the title that is given to him, the companion of the fish or the companion of the whale. The noon. and we're going to cover it from an amazing book of which you have a full copy in front of you and this for me was very important when we started planning this seminar it was very important to me that I give you the entire book now we, the book comprises in English around about a hundred pages of, uh, of text and it's unrealistic for us to cover that in a couple of hours. So we are just going to focus on certain points. But at least I want you to be able to take this book, and for you guys to be able to go home and to be able to read it from beginning to end, with all of those principles that you have been given in the in the in the seminar inshallah. So before we actually go into this book. And I have a, this, you'll be able to see me see the book right here. You can see the book right here on the screen on both sides. And you have it in front of you. There's nothing going to come on the screen, inshallah, that you don't have in front of you. So you have it already. However, another thing that I think is quite important is very briefly, just let's say around about five minutes, let us remind ourselves of the story of. Yunus. And I thought it would be nice if we were to just go to the to the Qur'an and we were to just look at the story of Yunus as Allah Azza mentioned it in the Quran. Perhaps the most comprehensive or one of the most comprehensive uh, parts of the story of Yunus is in Surah Al Safat in which Allah Azza said and indeed, Yunus was one of those messengers who were sent by Allah. إِذْ أَبَقَ إِلَى الْفُلْكِ الْمَشْحُونَ When he ran away to the laden ship. So the first thing that we have to do is give a little bit of context here. That Yunus was sent to the people of Nineveh in Iraq. And when he was sent to that place like all of the prophets and the messengers, what was his job? To call the people to la ilaha illallah. To call the people to testify that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah and that he was their messenger to be followed. And the people did not Answer his call. They did not respond to his call. So Yunus, he made a decision because he had heard what Allah had revealed to him from the stories of the earlier prophets that the people his people had not believed. And what do we know about the Sunnah of Allah? The sunnah of Allah, the way of Allah When the people don't believe in the Prophet What is going to come? The punishment of Allah is going to come The same thing that happened to the people of Nuh When he spent 950 years calling them Ultimately when they did not listen What happened? The punishment of Allah came all of the people, one by one, the people of Lut, the people of Ad, the people of Thamud, you can keep going through the stories that we are told of the prophets that once the people didn't believe, the punishment of Allah is going to come. And so Yunus presumed that because his people also did not believe in him, the punishment of Allah was going to come. And so he left. But he did not wait for the command of Allah in that regard. Because it was clear to him that his people are not going to respond to him. His people are not going to listen to him. They're not going to respond. Nobody is answering his call. And so he left. Waiting only for the punishment of Allah to come to his people as was the case with the previous prophets. But he left before Allah عز had decreed or had commanded him that that was his time to leave. And that was not out of disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the sense that he had, it was not in the sense that he wanted to disobey Allah and to do something wrong and something bad. But he made a presumption. He made a presumption. And his presumption was That if my people are not now going to answer my call, then of course, what is going to happen? The punishment of Allah is going to come and I am going to leave. And indeed, the punishment of Allah was coming, as it was mentioned. That the punishment of Allah was near to to the people of that city. And it was about to strike them. And so Yunus, of course, the punishment of Allah is on the horizon. He left. And when he left, he left and he climbed aboard a... Heavily laden ship. Al fulkil mashhun, a ship that was heavily burdened, heavily with a lot of cargo on the ship, and the ship ran into difficulty. And the way of the people of that time and that place, their religious beliefs, and their, you know, the kind of culture they were in, is they used to take certain steps when they used to get into trouble in the sea. The first one was a very fairly sensible one, and not a religious one. They would get rid of the cargo. So they would take the big boxes and the big things that were on the ship, and they would throw them in the sea. And if that didn't settle the ship, then the people, they had a belief which was a polytheistic belief, a non-Islamic belief, relating to the fact that this is, you know, the like they talk about the the god of the sea or the gods of the sea and so on and you have to appease them otherwise everyone is going to drown and ultimately they decided that we have to sacrifice one of the people on the ship now Eunice is just one of the people on the ship so what did they do to be fair about who would be thrown aboard they drew lots you know how you draw lots, right? There are different ways, but you have like long, long sticks or short sticks, or you have one that has a marker on it, and you show somebody the. Everyone draws a stick, and you see who who gets the short straw, or who gets the one with the mark on it, or who gets the one that's broken at the end. So you share it out. One, two. Okay, everybody take. Which is yours? He got the short straw but they said no 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 we want to keep you because you are one of the better uh, you are one of the best among us one of the best people among us <laughs> and so for sure you have to stay we will we will draw the lots again and so again they drew the lots and again yunus was the one who drew the lot that he had to jump overboard and so he realized alayhi salam that this was a test from Allah Azza wa Jal And a decree from Allah That Allah had decreed That he was to be the one thrown overboard And saw the fish or the whale The well-known uh, opinion among the Jews and the Christians Is that that it was a whale and as for among the Muslims, then this is an issue which is difficult because the word hut, it can cover many uh, different types of sea creatures or many different types of fish and sea creatures. But in any case, the fish or the, the whale. While he was in a state of being blamed, he was blameworthy because he had left before the command of Allah Azza wa Jal came. And I want you to think about this a lot because we're going to come back to it, inshaAllah. It's extremely important. For it were, if it were not for the fact that he was among the musabbihin, musabbih is somebody who says, Subhanallah. Somebody who says, Subhanallah. Somebody who says, subhanallah. More than one of the scholars of Tafsir mentioned about al musabbihin This refers to the people who pray their prayers. It refers to the people who pray their prayers. If it were not for the fact that he was from the people who remembered Allah with the tasbih, in his prayers, Subhana Rabbi Al A'la, Subhana Rabbi Al If it were not for the fact that he was from the people who used to pray to Allah with tasbih, La Labitha fi ila Yawmi he would have remained in its stomach until the day of resurrection. And that tells you the value of the prayer. And the value of the prayer in escaping hardship. And in fact, if this is the only thing that you take away from my segment of the lecture today, it's enough for you. That if you want a single way of escaping hardship, falawla أَنَّهُ كَانَ مِنَ المسبحين. If it were not for the fact that he was from the people who made the tasbih of Allah in the prayer, he would never ever have gotten out of that situation. So the prayer, the prayer the prayer is the single most important thing that you can do to get yourself out of hardships and difficulties then he was cast upon the shore while he was in a state of sickness and then a gourd tree grew above him to give him shade and we sent him to more than 100,000 people When he returned, all of his people believed Because the punishment of Allah was on the horizon And when he left, they realized the, the, The fault and the flaws that they were in And when he returned, they believed They believed and Allah gave them respite Until an appointed time And Allah عز و جل To conclude the story Just to give from a different aspect In Surah Al-Anbiya In ayah number 87 Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says وَذَنُّونِ إِذ ذَهَبَ مُغَادِبًا فَظَنَّ أَنْ لَنَّقْدِرَ لن عَلَيْهِ فَنَادَ فِي الظُّلُمَاتِ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنْتَ سُبْحَانَكِ إِنِّي كُنتُ مِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ And then noon The companion of the fish Or of the whale When he left in a state of anger He left and he let his anger get to him He let his anger overcome him Anger for what? Anger for the sake of Allah Anger for the fact that his people did not accept his message And he presumed That we would not take him to account That we would not strike him with a punishment Now the meaning of this, I want you to understand it properly so that we don't say something wrong about Yunus that is not true. He did not believe, it is not the case that you read this and say he did not think Allah can get me. He did not think Allah can punish me. He is a prophet. Of course he knows that Allah can punish him. He did not think that Allah would punish him because he did not think that he had Presum- or being presumptuous, he did not think that he had gone before his time. He presumed that the time for him to leave had come. And that is why he thought that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not seize him with a punishment. Then he called out in the darkness. What darkness? The darkness of the stomach of the whale. The darkness of the sea. The darkness of the night. Darkness upon darkness, and that is why Allah Azza wa mentions الظلمات, all the different darknesses that were there. He was in a dark place inside of a dark place inside of a dark place. And he called out with this dua La ilaha illa anta subhanak inni And this is the dua that we have come to learn about this afternoon in my section of the of the, uh, the seminar. That there is no god that deserves to be worshipped but you subhanak. glory be to you how perfect you are <inaudible> indeed i was from the people who had oppressed themselves allah said <inaudible> we answered him <inaudible> and we saved him from his distress وَكَذَٰلِكَ نُنْجِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ And in this way, we will save every believer. And this is very important. Because what does this tell us? It tells us that if you want to be saved, you have a promise from Allah to get you out of hardships and difficulties. And that promise from Allah to get you out of hardships and difficulties is that if you understand this dua, and you make this dua the way that Yunus made this dua, with the understanding and with the iman And the actions that accompany it Then Allah will give you what he gave To Yunus: Relief from your sadness And your hardship And your distress And with that inshallah As an introduction We can begin with this beautiful book That we have in front of us This beautiful book that we have In front of us Is one of the books or one of the booklets or short works of Shaykh al Islam ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullahu Ta'ala and what you have to know about Shaykh al Islam ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullah Ta'ala is that the vast majority Almost all of the books that he wrote He wrote them in response to Someone asking him a question He was not one to start many books You know, just with an idea Like, oh, I was sitting one day thinking about this And I started writing Instead, he was one that when people would ask him He would see the need of the people And he would answer their question with a writing, with something in writing, and it would later become a part of his works, a part of his written works. And many of the books of al Islam ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala, follow this format. So in this one we see that it begins by saying that al Islam ibn Taymiyyah was asked Rahimahullah ta'ala About the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu And this is a hadith Of the Prophet Sallallahu That the dua Of my brother The noon The noon As we said Is the companion of the fish Meaning Yunus The companion of the whale
1: La ilaha
2: illa Anta subhanak Inni Kuntu none has the right to be worshipped but you. Glory be to you, and far removed are you from any imperfection. I have been a wrong among the wrongdoers. Nobody who is experiencing difficulty employs it except that Allah will relieve him of this difficulty. So the questioner begins with a hadith. The person who is writing or questioning or asking Shaykhul Islam ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala About this dua, he begins with a hadith He says there is a hadith which says That anybody experiencing difficulty Who makes this dua, Allah will relieve him of his difficulty And this has a parallel in the ayah As we heard فَاسْتَجَبْنَا لَهُ مِنَ الْغَمْ وَكَذَلِكَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ In this way, we will save the believers who make this dua. So we have an ayah and we have a hadith
1: which both
2: indicate to us that anyone who makes this dua in a state of hardship or difficulty, Allah will relieve that hardship or difficulty from them. And the questioner had some points that he would like to ask. Now, I I just want to highlight here a little benefit, a little faidah for you all. Look at the quality of the question And if I'm not mistaken I heard this also uh, In the explanation of Al-Aqeedah, Al-Wasitiyah By, if I'm not mistaken uh, By Sheikh Abdul Razak Al-Badr hafizahullah Ta'ala That he mentioned this faid. Look at the quality of the question And look at the difference between when you have a serious student of knowledge, a person of knowledge, asking a question of a person of knowledge. And the quality that you get out of it. You know, sometimes we see the questions, you know, if you go through an Islamic question and answer site. And you see the kind of questions people ask. And there is no such thing as a silly question, don't be scared. You ask whatever question is within you. But look at the difference when you get the students of knowledge and the scholars together asking each other questions. The quality of the question. So they asked the Shaykh the following What is the meaning of this supplication? Are there conditions that have to be met when you make this supplication? Or is it just that I say, La ilaha illa anta subhanak, inni kuntum min and I wait for my relief to come? what is the connection between belief in the heart and the meaning of this supplication so that it leads to the removal of difficulty why did he confess i have been among the wrongdoers when it is known that Tawheed, Tawheed being the worship of allah alone that allah is alone in his lordship and his worship and his names and attributes if that alone removes difficulty Why did he need to express that he was among the wrongdoers? He's a person of tawheed, he's a prophet. He came to call the people to understand that Allah is the only one deserving of worship and to act upon it. And that the lordship and worship and names and attributes is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if he was like that and he was in that situation, why did he need to confess that he had done something wrong? Is it sufficient? To acknowledge your sin alone, or must it be accompanied by repentance and resolve not to do the sin in the future? Why is it the difficulty and harm are only removed when a person relinquishes hope and reliance and dependency upon the creation? So why is it that, this in itself, the question is giving you an answer. So many people don't get their hardship removed. Because they haven't removed their attachment to the creation. They're still waiting for someone. You know, for example, financial hardship. They are still waiting for a rich guy to come and give them money. And this is why they don't get relief. Because they still haven't attached their heart to Allah. They still haven't understood that Allah Azza wa will relieve their, their, their situation and their distress. They still say, oh, when is that day going to come when this guy is going to come with a big bundle of money and say, there you go. So the question is asking about this. We have seen that until people remove this connection to other people and put it upon Allah alone, why is it that their difficulty and hardship doesn't get removed until this happens? How can the heart relinquish the characteristic of putting hope in the creation and instead put its hope in Allah And turn to him in his entirety And what are the methods That would aid the heart in doing this What a question That is an amazing question That's an amazing series of questions Of someone who has really thought about that dua How many people pass by this dua I don't think any of us came into this room today Without knowing that dua لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إني كنت من الظالمين and probably a good number of us have tried to make that du'a ourselves. But how many of us came with those ten or whatever, however many we had? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight at least. Eight, if not more, there are sub-questions in there. Eight core questions that I've been thinking about this Ah, and I need to know one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. This is your approach towards the Qur'an. And this in itself would bring you so much benefit and barakah and blessings if you approached every ayah of the Qur'an like this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهُ What do I need to understand? What don't I understand about this? What is missing about this ayah? What is the meaning of muttaqin? What is the meaning of hudah? Where did the guy? And you start really thinking about the ayah, and really, you know, letting yourself think of your questions and getting into depth and detail. And then you went to one of the scholars of Islam and the people of knowledge, and you presented that to them. Not only will you benefit yourself, but what are we reading today? We are reading the the outcome of a really, really good question. And that is one of the benefits that the Shaykh, Shaykh Ad-Razzaq, mentioned in his explanation of Aqid al-Wasatiyah. The benefit of a good question. That until today we are still benefiting from that question that that person asked. Because of the quality of what they asked and the depth. And the fact that they had the intelligence to ask it to someone like Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. Rahimahullah someone who could give them an answer that is not a one-word answer for each one. Yes, no, like this. But someone who effectively wrote a book that until today we benefit from, as a result of a really, really well thought out question. So we have headings, Uh, if you can see, and I'm going to switch my annotation on so that you can can see it. Inshallah, we have headings. I think it's pretty important that we focus upon the headings because finishing the text is going to be difficult. But, uh, as as a side benefit, as I said, we've made sure that we've given you the entire book. So what you have in front of you is the whole book. In the sense that whatever we don't finish today or whatever we don't highlight, it's very easy for you to go home and read. It's a book that you can read yourself. It's not a book that is extremely... Difficult or complicated You can actually go home and read it yourselves Inshallah So the first thing that the sheikh speaks about Is the meaning of dua And he brings us two different types of dua So it's interesting that the questioner didn't ask What is the meaning of dua? That wasn't part of the question So why did al Islam respond With the meaning of dua When the questioner didn't ask What the meaning of dua is We think that the reason for this is That the mufti When the mufti is giving you a fatwa They give you whatever They think that you will need In order to understand the answer properly Whenever the Shaykh or the scholar Is giving you an answer and we take this from the Hadith of the Prophet wasallam For example, the Hadith, "Huwa al It is the one whose water is purifying, and the dead in it are halal for you to eat. Talking about the sea. The question I didn't ask the Prophet wasallam about eating the fish in the sea. He asked only, okay, Can we make wudu from the sea water? The Prophet ﷺ gave him an answer that was several times bigger than what he asked for. All of this water you can use it for wudu, ghusl, you can use it for cleaning your clothes, you can use it for any act of purification, whether it is ritual or otherwise. And you can eat all of the animals in it, whether they are slaughtered or whether they are not slaughtered. He gave an answer that was bigger because he thought that this is in the need of the person to be able to understand and to be able to benefit. And this is what the scholars have followed on from. They have followed on from this. That sometimes you may ask a question, and sometimes I've seen some of the brothers, they get impatient. They ask the sheikh a question. And the sheikh begins by answering something which is on another topic. And he says, I know, but the thing is here that he's giving you what you need to be able to understand what is going to come. And what the two points that we want to highlight here particularly are, Dua'ul ibada and Dua'ul Mas'ala That Dua can be used in two senses Dua'ul ibada and Dua'ul Mas'ala So let's cover the second one first Because it's easier to understand Dua'ul Mas'ala is where you make Dua Asking Allah for something You make Dua asking Allah for something O oh Allah enrich me. O oh Allah give me health. O oh Allah save me from my distress. You are asking Allah for something. And du'a ul is where you are supplicating to Allah but you are supplicating to Allah through words which don't ask for something directly but instead they are you are expressing your need through worshipping through words which express your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you're not asking for something directly. You're not asking for something directly. So if we look, for example, at somebody who says, Rabbi لِي My Lord, forgive me. Conceal my sins. This person is dua masala, it's dua. You're asking Allah for something. Allah forgive me. If you look at the dua of Yunus, ilaha illa anta subhanak inni inside of that dua you don't see a request for something
1: uh,
2: directly or explicitly. You don't see an explicit request You see an implicit request Meaning you see a request Which is not in the words But it's in the The meaning of what you're asking for And so You Have these two different types of dua Which Shaykh Risham would say, gives examples For And then he says, and we want to just highlight this particular part here. That the linguistic meaning of the word Salah is Dua. Because the Salah encompasses both Dua in the form of worship, and it also encompasses Dua in in the form of requesting. Just look at Surah Al-Fatiha Just look at Surah Al-Fatiha All of Surah Al-Fatiha is a dua And yet in Surah Al-Fatiha There are times you are asking Allah directly And there are times you are asking Allah Implicitly For example (laughs) You alone we worship And you alone we ask for help you alone we worship, and you alone we ask for help Why did Allah عز wa say about that specific ayah هذا بيني وبين عبدي ما This is between me and my slave, and my slave will have what he asked for Did you ask for anything? إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين Implicitly yes You asked Allah to help you But not by saying Oh Allah help me By saying you are the only one we worship And you are the only one we ask for help So we see these two different kinds of Dua The dua where you ask directly And the dua where you Express your worship of Allah And the prayer Contains them both As for the dua or ibadah The dua which is ibadah Or which is worship It also as al Islam Taymiyyah explains here Encompasses the actions of worship that you do So here he said The statement of Allah Azzawajal Supplicate to me And I will answer Udu'uni Astajib lakum There are two different explanations to this Worship me and enact my orders And I will respond to you by accepting it Or Ask me and I will give you So there are two ways we could understand this Make dua to me and I will answer you If we understand this as Dua ul ibadah, the dua of worshipping Allah without asking, then the meaning of this could be, worship me and do what I command you to do, and I will accept your worship from you. And if we take it to be dua ul mas'ala, make dua to me, and I will answer your dua for the things that you ask for. Is there any contradiction between the two? Is there any reason it can't be both? This is ikhtilaf no diff there is no reason why it cannot be both of them. Worship me and I will accept your worship. Make dua to me and I will answer your dua. Both of these come under the statement of supplicate to me and I will answer you. The next title that we have The condition of the one Who is supplicating The sheikh he said Every person who is asking Is in a state that combines Hope and fear Hope and fear Now I want you to remember That both myself And Ustad Abdurrahman today Are talking about a dua which comes from both of them are found on the same page in Surah Al Anbiya. Both of them are found on the same page in Surah Al Anbiya. At the end of those two du'as, at the end of Surah Al Anbiya is the dua of Zakaria. After the dua of Zakaria, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned the situation of those prophets who were making dua. Innahum kanu they used to rush to do good deeds And they used to call upon us in fear and hope And they used to be in a state of submission And, and a state of khushu' towards us So if you want your dua to be answered Like their dua was answered You have to bring this so you have to bring the hope and the fear and the doing of good and so on. But here the first thing Shaykh mentions تعالى, is hope and fear. The worshipper, meaning the one who is not asking, so the one who is asking is in a state of hope and fear. The worshipper is also in a state of hope and fear. Hoping for the mercy of the one asked and fearing his punishment. So every worshipper is one who asks and everyone who asks is a worshipper. This is a beautiful principle. The shaykh has actually combined dua'ul ibadah and dua'ul mas'ala to come to the conclusion that everyone worshipping Allah is actually asking for something. And everyone who is asking Allah is worshipping him Link that back to what I said about إِيَّاكَ And it now makes sense That when I say, oh Allah, you alone I worship And you alone I ask for help Implicitly, I'm asking Allah to help me To worship him So even when I'm not asking Allah, I'm asking Allah Asking Allah is worship And worshipping Allah includes an implicit dua of asking him for things Because you are hoping for his reward and mercy And you are fearing his punishment However, when they are both mentioned together Then the one asking has the specific meaning Of the one who is seeking good and to keep evil away from him And the one worshipping has the specific meaning Of the one who is doing the same Through enacting the orders of Allah So this is from these beautiful There's a a beautiful category of words It's a beautiful category of words This category of words Or this category of phrases Are phrases that when they come together They go apart And when they are found apart They come together What does that mean? When When they are found together They go apart And when they are found apart, they come together. It means that if we talk about dua ul mas'ala on its own, or dua ul ibadah on its own, the dua of worshipping Allah on its own, or the dua of asking Allah on its own, they both cover the same thing. But when they come together, and you say this one is worshipping and this one is making dua, Muhammad is worshipping and Abdullah is making dua, when you just say Muhammad is worshipping, That includes du'a and it includes worship It includes actions That are apart from du'a And when you say Abdullah Is making du'a It means he's making du'a and he's worshipping Allah Both of them are the same But when you say Muhammad is worshipping And Abdullah is making du'a Now the meanings Become a bit more specific When we say Muhammad is worshipping He's asking Allah through doing actions Through taking actions. Doing things by which he is asking Allah for Jannah And protection from the hellfire And the one who is making dua He is asking Allah through words But otherwise the two of them are both asking Allah But when you put them together in the same sentence It gives each one a meaning that is specific And that's like Iman and Islam, right? Like Muslim and Mu'min When you say he's a Muslim Both of them are included When you say he's a mu'min insha'Allah Both of them are included But when you say he's a Muslim but she's a mu'mina Then the meanings become more specific This is from a group of words that when they come together they go apart Meaning that when they're found in the same sentence They have a, a unique meaning And when they go apart they come together Meaning that when you find them separate The meaning each of them carries the meaning of the other the point of discussion here is that the words supplication and invocation carry both meanings of worship and request. Their last dua is Alhamdulillahi rabbil The last dua that they make. Is Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen If their last dua is Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen But Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen is Dua of worship It's not, you're not asking Allah for something specific But you're implying asking Allah And so what the shaykh is explaining here is That these two, because they are being mentioned here apart It comes together to mean both You are asking Allah for paradise. You are asking Allah to keep you away from the hellfire, whether you are asking Him with direct words or whether you are asking Him implicitly through your actions. And in the hadith, it is mentioned the most superior form of dhikr is the statement, La ilaha illallah, and the most superior supplication is Alhamdulillah. Because when you say Alhamdulillah, you're still asking Allah, but you're asking him implicitly. Now the Shaykh comes to the supplication of Yunus. And he begins by mentioning the same hadith that the questioner mentioned, in order to confirm to the questioner that your hadith that you have mentioned is correct. And this hadith is recorded by Tirmidhi and others. That whoever makes this dua لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إني كنت من الظالمين No one makes this dua Experiencing difficulty Except that Allah will relieve him From this difficulty And now the shaykh is going to build upon What he has already mentioned to you He called it a dua Because it includes both types of supplication. Okay. This is the first thing that we need to answer. How does this statement, La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntuminovali, mean? How does it include both types of supplication? How? How does it include both types of supplication? The shaykh answers how it includes Because when you say La ilaha illa ant You are affirming that Allah deserves To be worshipped And Allah deserves to be made du'a to And when you say Inni kuntu minal dhalimeen I was among the wrongdoers You acknowledge your sin Which includes asking Allah for forgiveness So when you say La ilaha illa anta subhanak You confirm that Allah is the only one Deserving of dua And the only one deserving of worship And that includes an implicit dua Not an explicit dua it includes an implicit du'a that, O oh Allah, if You are the only one that I can make du'a to, I am asking You for Your help to get out of this situation. And when you say, "Inni I was from the wrongdoers. You are asking Allah to forgive you. So you are both worshiping Allah and asking Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. That is because the one seeking something either does so. By saying it clearly Or by alluding to it So there are two ways you can ask for something Let's say I want to ask someone for money So I come up to them, I can say Brother, can I have some money? Or I can come up to them and say Brother, wallahi It's been a long day, it's been hard Not much money in the bank SubhanAllah suffering quite a lot don't have very much i mean the point is you can either say it clearly or you can either give so much information that you are in any case asking the same thing here you are either you say allah forgive me or you say allah i am i have sinned so much both of them are the same you're either you're asking allah forgive me or you're saying oh allah i have sinned so much i.e., oh allah i have sinned so much so forgive me Or you're asking Allah, relieve my distress, or you're saying, Allah, you are the only one who can relieve distress. Or Allah, you're the only one who can relieve distress. And if Allah is the only one that can relieve distress, you're basically asking Allah implicitly, you're alluding to the fact that you want Allah to relieve your distress. There are examples. Which you can uh, Read here uh, I'll go through them briefly I'll go th- through them very very briefly uh, First of all let's just, look at, let's just look at Musa The dua of Musa Oh my lord I am certainly in need of whatever good you have in store for me Again, Musa did not say, "O oh Allah, give me good He did not say, "O oh Allah, give me good But he said, I am in need of you giving me good Which in itself is a dua to ask Allah to give good and a tirmidhi recorded that the Prophet ﷺ said Whoever is diverted by the recitation of Qur'an From performing dhikr and asking me I will give him the best of those who ask And that's very clear Because the Qur'an covers du'aul mas'ala and du'a ul ibadah And when you are busy worshipping Allah by reading the Qur'an You are also You are also Busy Asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala implicitly or explicitly. In Kaina, of even if the hadith has a weakness uh, in it, to the best of my knowledge, and Allah knows best. Perhaps even clearer than that is the supplication on the day of Arafah: La ilaha illa anta, La ilaha illallah hu wahtahu la sharikala, la hul mulkwahul hand, wahua ala kulli shayy in qadir. There is no time. When it is more important to make du'a to Allah Than the day of Arafah There is no time when you are more likely to get your du'a accepted Than the day of Arafah The best day that the sun has risen over And the best thing you can say on that day is what? لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الملك وله الحمد وهو ala كل شيء qadir You're not asking directly But when you make that statement Indirectly, you are saying, Oh Allah, you're the only one that can answer, the only one that can enrich me, the only one that can help me, the only one that can save me from my distress, the only one that can give me health, the only one that can give me life, the only one that can give me Jannah. Therefore, give those to me. And the only one that can save me from, and the only one that can secure me from, and the only one that can give me an escape from, so save me from it and give me an escape from. The Sheikh mentions a, a, a really beautiful point in this uh, segment here. A couple of beneficial points in this segment here that we just want to highlight. And otherwise, I recommend that you read it line by line. But just to 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 uh, the difference between good manners and being resolute. When a person says, "I am hungry," "I am sick." They are displaying good manners in asking. And when they say, feed me, give me medicine, they are being resolute. The first one contains more humbleness and displaying of need, which appears to be why the prophets preferred or did it more often than the direct request. Bearing in mind, That the direct requests are just as much a part of dua as the indirect ones But why is it that in those examples of the prophets We see those prophets using the first type of example Mentioning their state and their condition and their difficulty Because it contains an additional element of humbleness and displaying of need Than the one who says with firm resolute Give me Enrich me, feed me, clothe me, help me. That is good. And there is nothing bad-mannered about asking Allah in that way because you are asking Allah and showing your determination. But there is an element of humbleness and there is an element of need when you express yourself in the first manner. I am hungry, I am sick, I am in difficulty. This last paragraph Hence asking via describing one's state and need Is better From the perspective of knowledge And describing your state And asking directly is clearer With regard to expressing your intent and objective That's why most of the supplications Are of the second type Are most supplications just asking Allah generally La ilaha illallah Or are most of the supplications like Rabbi ghafir and most of the supplications you are you are directly asking, you know in the direct route. But many of the supplications of the Prophets mention that first follow that first method of describing your state and your need and your desperation and expressing humbleness before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If, however, this person were to mention his condition and the condition of the one being asked and then mention a direct request, this would be the better form of supplication. And this is why we have, for example, this dua which we were taught by the Prophet ﷺ, and it was taught to Abu Bakr, Say, O Allah, I have oppressed my soul greatly and frequently, and there is none to forgive your sins except you. So forgive me with a forgiveness from yourself, and have mercy on me, and you are the all-forgiving, the most merciful. Look at all the elements here. Calling upon Allah with his names Mentioning your state I have oppressed my soul Mentioning the state of Allah No one can forgive except you So forgive me The direct request With the forgiveness from yourself And have mercy on me The direct request And then again concluding with the names and attributes This is the dua uh, And uh, the, uh, as we said, this dua contains all of the aspects that were mentioned. It joins between all of them. It joins between the dua that you are asked when you are mentioning your state, you are mentioning the one you are asking, you are mentioning a direct supplication. Let me see if we can finish. We'll finish 1.4 and then we'll stop because we have only, I think, two minutes left. So we're just going to finish, inshallah, ta'ala, 1.4, and then after Maghrib we'll be continuing, inshallah. We'll be continuing. The condition of Yunus. Now the question arises as to why it was befitting for the companion of the whale and others in such dire circumstances to supplicate by describing their states rather than asking directly. The response is that the situation calls for an acknowledgement. That the evil that has afflicted someone is because of his sin. This is very important. Why did Yunus not ask directly? We, saw, we said that the expression of need, of humbleness, and then we have this next point that you need to acknowledge that things that that evil that happens to you and calamities that happen to you happen to you because of the sins that you do. Therefore, the source of this evil is sin. And the objective is to repress the harm and remove the difficulty. Whereas the desire to ask for forgiveness comes secondary to this. However, he did not directly ask for the harm to be removed because he had the overwhelming feeling within himself that he had committed a sin, oppressed himself, and that he himself was the cause of this harm. And again... As a few points I'm going to come and I'm going to say to you guys That if you understood this You have taken more than enough from this first session You need to develop this feeling in yourself When you go through a difficulty and a calamity You need to stop blaming other people And stop looking at other people And say the reason why I'm going through this calamity Go and look in the mirror You'll see the reason very, very clearly Any mirror go and stand and look in the mirror and you will see the reason why you are going through this calamity it's you and that's the problem the problem is that when we ask it's like yeah this person and that and oh, you know this happened and you know if only this and all of the excuses come out look at yunus even what yunus did he had an excuse he had an he had an, uh, 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 a a a a misunderstanding that he had or a way of ex- uh, a, a way of justifying what he did And still his sense of sin was so great that he didn't even bring himself to ask Allah to remove the harm directly because of such a huge sense of sin within himself. Even though what he did, he had a ta'wil for it. He had a reason and a justification, wrong as it may have been. But he had an, an understanding for it or a reason why he did it. And yet we blame everything except ourselves. Therefore it befitted his situation that he mentioned that which will remove the cause of harm And the soul by its nature, nature seeks after its immediate need So that before you start thinking about getting out of the whale You start thinking about why am I in the will? I'm in the will because of me So if I ask Allah implicitly to, to remove my sin and to forgive me for what I did Then by default the next steps are going to come automatically automatically I'm going to get out of that situation, automatically I'm going to be out of the fish, automatically the skin is going to get healed and repaired, automatically I'm going to go back and give those people the hour because the very first step is just to get rid of the, the core of the problem, the root of the problem, which is the mistake that I made in the first place. The immediate objective in this situation is the desire to see the harm removed, followed by forgiveness. And that was what was foremost in his mind, and the best way to acquire this was to get rid of the course. And insha'Allah ta'ala we will stop there for Maghrib. After Maghrib we will conclude what we can from this uh, dua. And then insha'Allah ta'ala we will move on to the second part of the seminar. And Allah is best. Okay, bismillah walhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalam ala Rasulillah. وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَأَصْحَابِهِ وَمَنْ وَلَىٰ أَمَّا بَعْدٍ If we could just ask everyone to uh, just get seated inshallah we have very very little time we only have approximately certainly not more than an hour perhaps less than that in order to finish as much of this as we possibly can and there are many many benefits yet to be taken from this dua I've tried to highlight the areas that I want to speak about just in the break in order to make it really, really quick so that we can go through them very, very quickly and if we can ask to make sure that the uh, uh, the document is displayed inshaAllah ta'ala on the screen we reached section 1.5 Allah does not wrong anyone this relates to the statement of yunus alayhi salam subhanak subhanak how perfect are you that is the meaning of subhanallah how perfect you are o allah and that necessitates that allah doesn't wrong anyone allah azza wa jal does not do oppression to anyone and allah does not wrong anyone and therefore that actualizes the idea that we are the ones responsible or our actions are the cause for the calamities and the hardships that we suffer what about the meaning of la ilaha illallah and subhanallah when yuna said there is none worthy of worship except you he affirmed that allah alone is singled out with regards to al ilahiyyah. Ilahiya divinity and divinity includes within it the affirmation of the perfection of Allah's knowledge power mercy wisdom and his benevolence this is very important because it means that when you say la ilaha illallah you are affirming that Allah you have perfect knowledge and perfect power to save me and perfect mercy to bestow upon me and perfect wisdom of when to answer my du'a at the right time for me and perfect benevolence as to when to bestow your kindness and mercy and generosity upon me so you're asking for all of those things when you say la ilaha illallah and this is an important point also that simply negating something isn't praise until you affirm the opposite have you ever thought about how often Subhanallah and Alhamdulillah come in the same sentence? Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanallahil The reason for this is, some people mistakenly believe that the meaning of Subhanallah is simply that there is nothing flawed about Allah. There is nothing negative, nothing flawed, nothing deficient about Allah. But when you say that, you have to also affirm what Allah is. So if we say for example, if we say for example, وَمَا Allah did not oppress them. Then we have to also affirm justice. Unlike some of the sects that exist in Islam, like the Jahmiyyah and others, who when they said Subhanallah, their understanding of Subhanallah is Allah is not, Allah is not, Allah is not, Allah is not, Allah is not. not Finished. And that is the wrong understanding of Subhanallah. The correct understanding of Subhanallah is Allah is not, therefore Allah is. Allah is not, therefore Allah is Allah is not, therefore Allah is Allah is not oppressive, therefore He is just Allah is not, does not do things for no reason, therefore He is wise Allah does not oppress Therefore Allah Azzawajal will always give you what you deserve And so on So whenever you negate something about Allah Or you deny something about Allah You have to affirm the opposite Otherwise it is not Subhanallah wa bihamdihi It's not the Subhanallah That comes with the praise of Allah And this is important So when we are saying La ilaha illallah We are negating something And that negating in itself Has to contain the perfect opposite That every aspect of divinity It belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And that's why we say La ilaha illallah La ilaha illa anta subhanak Joins between affirming everything that Allah is And denying everything that Allah isn't And that implicitly contains a dua And that is why in the two sahih The Prophet wasallam said There are two statements that are light upon the tongue And heavy on the scales and beloved to ar-Rahman Subhanallah wa bihamdihi il azim so what about to summarize the meaning of the supplication? Sheikh al-Islam rahimahullah ta'ala he said The saying of the supplicant There is none worthy of worship save you Glory be to you Far removed are you from any imperfection Includes within it the meaning of the four phrases That are the best and most superior words after the Qur'an So it contains in it a tahleel It contains in it La ilaha illallah And it contains within it, Subhanallah It contains within it the praise of Allah Azzawajal It contains the mention of Allah's names and attributes It contains asking Allah Azzawajal for forgiveness So when you say that I have been among the wrongdoers This comprises an acknowledgement of the reality of the situation It's not possible for any servant to be free of wrongdoing Especially when you're speaking before Allah It's established that the Prophet ﷺ said It's not right for any servant to say I am better than Yunus ibn Matta And he said Whoever says I am better than Yunus ibn Matta Has lied Meaning Whoever thinks they do not need to acknowledge their sins is, Has lied And how bad is it that you lie to yourself, and how much worse is it that you lie to Allah Azzawajal. The one who nothing escapes him in the heavens and the earth. You have to be honest with yourself about the sins that you do. And you have to be honest as you speak to Allah when you say, that you have, Rabbi, or Allahumma inni zalamtu nafsi ظُلْمًا kathira. I have oppressed myself an immense oppression. That you say it with a heart that feels it, not with a heart that says, "Well, alhamdulillah, I don't do that." I mean, people say to you, "I don't do sins." Alhamdulillah, I don't have any major sins. What makes you know? Who came to you and told you this? Jibril came to you and told you you don't have sins whoever believes they are in this state that they are sinless or they believe they don't need to acknowledge their sins before Allah this person has lied to themselves so it's very very important that we understand and as we've said before that there are you know some of the ways you can understand this that there's not sins are not always things that you do with your hands the things you do with your tongue the things you do with your heart the things you don't do that you're supposed to do The things that, the obligations that you have that you haven't fulfilled, there are huge aspects to sin that we don't think about. Look, today I did not steal anything from anyone. But how many people did we speak about? How many things did we not do that we were supposed to do? How many times were we supposed to show gratitude and patience and all of the things that we were supposed to do that we didn't do? How many obligations did we miss that we didn't even know about? there are huge aspects to sin that we don't even we don't even reflect upon so now we come to this the second part of this of this treatise why does this supplication remove harm so the first point is that no one except allah can remove harm so when you say la ilaha illa anta subhanak you are affirming that nobody can remove harm except allah And if you're affirming that nobody can remove harm except Allah, you are implicitly asking Allah to remove harm from you. If Allah touches you with harm, nobody can remove it but Him. And if He touches you with good, He has power over all things. And your sins are the cause. For the onset of harm And asking forgiveness Removes that cause So Allah Jalla has informed us He will not punish those who repent to him And as is mentioned in the hadith Whoever frequently asks for forgiveness Allah will give him a relief from every worry And a way out from every difficulty And a provision from where he could never imagine The Prophet entered upon a sick person and asked, In what state does this sickness find you? He said, I hope in Allah and I fear my sins. The Prophet said, These two never come together in the heart of a servant on such occasions, except that Allah grants him what he hopes and saves him from what he fears. So you must, when you make this dua, you must have that joining between Fear and hope Hope so that Allah can give you what you hope for And fear so that Allah can save you from what you fear There is another secret as to why this du'a Or why this du'a is so effective at removing hardship And it can be found in the statement of Allah الذين آمنوا ولم يلبسوا إيمانهم بظلم أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ Those who have faith And they do not mix their iman with any wrongdoing Notice we're going to put the word wrongdoing here I'm going to highlight it They are the ones who are safe And they are the ones who are guided The Prophet explained the meaning of wrongdoing here He said it is as Luqman, the righteous servant, said, Ya Bunayya la tushrik billah inna azim. O my son, do not make a partner with Allah. Indeed, making a partner with Allah is the greatest of sins. So, if you can be free of making a partner with Allah, then Allah has promised you two things He has promised you safety and He has promised you guidance. Among many many things that Allah has promised. But here we have two things safety and we have guidance. If we have safety and guidance, what more do you need to be removed from your calamity and your hardship? If Allah gives you safety from the hardships you're going through and Allah guides you to how to get out of it, that's all you need. And the actual the words which actually encompass this and bring it for you and put it in front of you is La ilaha illallah al Tawheed, the word of Tawheed, the phrase which means that there is no God that deserves to be worshipped except Allah And the phrase which means that you have nothing to do with making a partner with Allah This by default brings you al-aman, it brings you safety And by default it brings you guidance out of every issue that you are in and every difficulty that you are in In a sahihayn from the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, that he said, we were afflicted by severe poverty. So I came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi to ask of him, only to find him addressing the people, saying, people, whatever good I have, I will never withhold it from you. Whoever suffices with what he has, Allah will give him sufficiency. And whoever refrains from begging, Allah will save him from want. And whoever is patient and steadfast, Allah will give him the ability to be patient. And none has been given a gift that is better or greater than patience. He who suffices with what he has, Allah will make him sufficient. And the one who refrains from begging, Allah will make it so that he doesn't need to beg anyone. And the one who tries to be patient, Allah will make him patient. This shows us that the servant who is trying to get what will benefit him and avoid what will harm him, can only turn his heart towards Allah. And that is the meaning of La ilaha illallah. Look at that, this is a, a real secret of the du'a. That if you turn your heart completely and totally to Allah Allah will make it such that you do not need anything else So in a certain way we can look at this and say That la ilaha illallah is the only dua that you need Not to say it's the only dua mentioned in the sunnah But it's the only dua that you desperately desperately need Because if you can turn your heart to Allah Allah will remove it from everything that you, every difficulty and every hardship, every problem If you don't, don't beg of others Allah will make you free of need If you don't have that thing that you are attached to other people Allah will make it that you don't feel that in your heart You don't need that attachment And Allah will save you from what it is that you are asking Or you would have asked them to save you from it's reported also in the Sahihain from the authority of Ibn Abbas الله عنهما, That the Prophet ﷺ used to say in difficult occasions
1: لا إله
2: إلا الله. There is no God worthy of worship except Allah The exalted the forbear There is no God worthy of worship except Allah Lord of the great throne There is no God worthy of worship except Allah Lord of the heavens and the earth And Lord of the noble throne So these statements are a living testimony to Tawheed They actualize the servant Worshipping his Lord And show that he only puts hope in him Therefore you are effectively requesting from Allah That Allah delivers you from the hardship By affirming that you don't have any object That you are attached to Or anything that you hope in Or anything that you fear except Allah and when you affirm that by saying La ilaha illallah You actually affirm the fact that you are Requesting from Allah Azza wa Relief and Allah Azza wa Gives it to you. So in other words We can say that the greater Your understanding is Of la ilaha illallah The more effective this dua will be And that Really if you came into here to This evening and you hadn't thought about This dua in this way, this shows that there is still work to be done to understand the meaning of La ilaha illallah. And that is the case of all of us. Every one of us in this room can understand La ilaha illallah better than we do now. And this is your purpose. We only created the jinn and the men to worship me as Allah as told us. Your purpose in your life is to understand and actualize La ilaha illallah. The more you do that, the greater your status will be and the more Allah Azza wa Jal will bless you and will will relieve you from your difficulties and your your hardships. All of it comes back to understanding La Ilaha Illallah. And that's why you see from the dua of Yunus the depth of understanding of La Ilaha Illallah and the sincerity in that. And this is the next point the Sheikh mentions, the sincerity in it. It's not just enough for you to understand La ilaha illallah, but the more sincere you are in saying it, the more powerful it is in you getting relief from your distress. The more the servant increases in sincerity of saying La ilaha illallah, the weaker he becomes attached to his desires and the more sins he is available to he is able to avoid. So this is the first way. That increased sincerity in La ilaha illallah brings you additional or brings you relief from hardship. Because the more sincere you are in saying La ilaha illallah, the less sins that you do. And that is why the least of the people in sin were the prophets and the messengers, والسلام, because they were the most sincere of the people in saying La ilaha illallah. And in this, the Shaykh quotes from Surah Yusuf. That that happened so that we might avert him from all evil and lust and he was our cho- chosen servant. That because of the understanding that Yusuf had of La ilaha illallah, Allah azza saved him from the sins that he might otherwise have committed. So the reason given for him being turned away from evil and indecent acts was that he was from the chosen servants of Allah, and it is about such servants that Allah azza told us. But as for my servants, you, meaning the shaytan, will have no authority over them. And it's well known that in some of the qira'at, al-mukhlasin can also be recited, al-mukhrisin. The chosen servants are also those who are sincere. And this is a benefit we can take from some of the different ayat in which the words mentioned Allah talks about his chosen servants Al-Mukhlasin Those who have been chosen by Allah In some of the qiraat, the ayat Those ayat are read Al-Mukhlasin The sincere servants Because the ones who are chosen by Allah They are those who are the most sincere And Allah Azawajan knows best So whoever actualizes Tawheed and seeks forgiveness will have all evil removed from him, and this is why the Noon said, "None has the right to be worshipped That should be the Noon said, "None has the right to be worshipped except you. Glory be to you. Far removed are you from any imperfection. I have been among the wrongdoers because it contains two parts: actualizing Tawhid and seeking forgiveness." Part 1 and Part 2. The Shaykh then goes on to discuss why Tawheed is mentioned along with forgiveness. He said it is for this reason that Tawheed is mentioned alongside asking forgiveness in many places. In Surah Muhammad, Ayah number 19. Know that there is none worthy of worship except Allah and ask forgiveness for your sins. So here we see. That in many, many places, actualizing tawheed, la ilaha illallah, is mentioned along with seeking forgiveness. And that these two are the two keys to get out of every hardship and problem. Actualize tawheed and seek forgiveness. It's as if this dua is saying to you if you can do two things, you'll be saved and delivered from hardship. If number one, you can really understand and sincerely implement La ilaha illallah And number two, you can genuinely and sincerely ask Allah to forgive you And bring about all of the conditions of those two things You will be delivered from every single hardship that you might suffer The shaykh then goes on to talk about the correct understanding of Tawheed Because obviously if you don't understand La ilaha illallah correctly How can you implement it? And if you can't implement it And bring about its conditions And bring forth the conditions that are required Then how will you escape from the calamity that you are suffering? We're not going to go into too much of the detail there You can read through it uh, by yourself But we need to fully understand That when we talk about Tawheed We are not simply talking about Believing that Allah is our Lord As many people will say When you ask them What is La Ilaha Illallah They will say La Ilaha Illallah is to testify That there is no creator Sustainer, provider Except Allah This doesn't make you any different From most of the non-Muslims in the world The vast majority of non-Muslims in the world also believe that there is no creator except Allah and no sustainer except Allah and no provider except Allah. This doesn't make you a Muslim. This doesn't even make you any different from Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl who also believed that there was no creator except Allah and no sustainer except Allah. But what makes you a Muslim is worshipping Allah alone. If you ask a Christian who created the heavens and the earth, they will say Almighty God, who is in heaven. They don't say Jesus created the heavens and the earth. They'll say Almighty God, who is in heaven. He created the heavens and the earth. So why are they not saying La ilaha illallah? What is missing from that statement? When they are not worshipping Allah alone. Then those people who disbelieve in their Lord, make others equal to Allah in worship. They make others their objects of worship. And that is what what you need to be free from to be a Muslim. You need to make your worship for Allah alone and leave everything that is worshipped besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what makes a person a Muslim. Not just believing that Allah is your Lord or your creator or your sustainer. So sometimes the problem is we say La ilaha illallah but we don't fully understand La ilaha illallah. So I do encourage you please to read through those points as well. And if we say that we are saying La ilaha illallah sincerely then La ilaha illallah comes along with its sister testimony which is that Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi wasallam is the messenger of Allah i.e., the obligation of obeying, believing in and obeying the Prophets and the Messengers. You can't bring one without the other. And that is why when a person says, La ilaha illallah, this includes belief and, in, and obedience to the Prophets and the Messengers. Because whoever obeys the Messenger, فَقَدْ a'ta Allah, That person has obeyed Allah. Say if you really love Allah, then follow me. So if you really want to testify, La ilaha illallah, this has to come with obedience to the Prophets and the Messengers, and in our case, obedience to our Messenger Muhammad. It is obligatory to obey the Messenger because to obey him is to obey Allah. Therefore, the lawful is what he made lawful, and the unlawful is what he made unlawful, and the religion is only that which he legislated. Everyone other than the messengers are only to be obeyed if obeying them is obedience to Allah. Ya ayyuha al-ladhina amanu, wa aati'ul rasoola wa uli'ul amri minkum. O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the messenger and those in authority over you. The shaykh goes on to explain Rahimahullah ta'ala The proper understanding of Iman And really this is bringing together Some of the things that we've heard about earlier So I highlighted it uh, For us to discuss In the last sort of half an hour And inshallah we'll, we'll try to also continue on from that Therefore Tawheed and Shirk takes place in the statements of the heart and its actions. And this is why Junaid said, Tawheed is the statement of the heart, and Tawakkul is the action of the heart. What he meant by Tawheed here is the foundational belief, because he mentioned it alongside Tawakkul. However, when it's mentioned by itself, it encompasses the statements of the heart and its actions. And Tawakkul is from the perfection of Tawheed. A lot of people ask about the famous hadith about the 70,000 who will enter Jannah without any hisab and any adab. هُمُ الَّذِينَ لَا يَسْتَرْكُونَ وَلَا وَلَا يَتَوَكَّلُونَ very famous hadith. They are those who do not seek ruqya and they do not believe in omens and they do not practice cautery and upon their Lord they trust. What should be understood by this hadith is that these four things are not Themselves the purpose of the hadith They are examples of perfecting tawheed Because tawakkul, having complete tawakkul in Allah is a sign That you have perfected la ilaha illallah Or that you have brought la ilaha illallah in a complete fashion And not that you have only done some of it and left some of it So, Tawakkul is an example of perfecting La ilaha illallah And the same applies to the word Iman When it's mentioned alone It covers outward and inward actions So when we talk about Iman Iman is smiling Iman is praying Iman is giving sadaqah And Iman is also believing in Allah and his angels and his messengers But when we mention actions and Iman together in the same sentence Then we use Iman for the, uh, we use Iman for the uh, uh, for either for in, differ- in different ways we can use it for, to refer to the matters which are inward actions and we for example if we say uh, Iman and action Iman and action for example then we can use Iman to refer to the inner actions and the actions to refer to the outward actions but when we mention iman on its own it encompasses all of those things the inner actions and the outward actions all of them are a part of iman We we'll go to 2.9 now inshallah Misdirected intentions A person could intend to ask Allah alone And put his reliance in him alone Yet in matters that Allah does not love Such a person may be sincere in asking But is not sincere in worship and obedience And this is the state of many of the people Who commit false practices so why was it so important to emphasize obedience? Why did Shaykh Ibn Taymiyyah spend a time talking about obedience to the Prophet? ﷺ? Because your intention may be good, your dua may be right. But if it's not accompanied with righteous action in accordance with the Sunnah, it's not going to be answered. amal Whoever does an action that's not in accordance with what we have brought, it will be rejected. It will be rejected. So a person might ask Allah alone, and might put reliance in Allah alone, but they might be asking for something haram. They might put their reliance in Allah, جل, and they might put their trust in Allah, and they might beg Allah with all of the etiquettes of asking, and all of the etiquettes of dua, But ultimately they are asking Allah for something that Allah did not make halal for them. So this is where the obedience to the Messenger becomes extremely important. Another group of people. They had obedience, but they did not have a tawakkul. They had obedience, but they did not have a tawakkul. These people will be rewarded for their intention and for their obedience But they will meet disappointment Because they did not fully have that tawakkul and asking in Allah Azza wa Such people are often tried with weakness or despair And sometimes with self-conceit Sometimes they're tried with weakness and despair And sometimes with conceit They're trying to obey Allah But they haven't fully submitted themselves to asking Allah's help And putting their tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And so they are often afflicted with weakness or despair Or they feel themselves to be sufficient with themselves And that is what is mentioned in the next section. We're going to skip on a little bit. I think this on page uh, 41 is important Page 40 and page 41 The Infallibility of the Prophets We don't have a lot of time until Isha uh, So I wanted to go to some of the more important points And I think this is important I alluded to it in the story of Yunus Alayhi salam. But we really do need to give it some attention regarding the infallibility. The fact that did the Prophets commit sins? And if so, what are the conditions of that or the extent of that? This discussion is centered on the following principle the Prophets السلام, are infallible when it comes to conveying the message from Allah by ijma' consensus. So the Muslim Ummah has consensus that when it comes to conveying the message, giving the risala, Those people, those prophets are infallible, they cannot make a mistake in delivering the message to their people But what about in matters other than conveying the message? Could they commit major or minor sins? Any or just some? Are they infallible from endorsing sins but not from committing them? And so on. The opinion of the majority in conformity to what is reported from the early generations is that they can never endorse sin. Meaning that a prophet can never approve of doing something sinful. And endorse it, approve of it, and deliberately uh, sort of affirm it or, or encourage it. The summary of what he says here can be found in this last paragraph. However, all of this holds true only if sins are persisted in and not retracted. Allah accepts sincere repentance and by virtue of it raises the ranks of the one who does it. Some of the early generations said salam, was better after his repentance than he was before his sin. Others said if repentance was not the most beloved thing to Allah, he would not have tested the best of creation with sin. Therefore, what we can say Very clearly is That the prophets Two things the prophets did not do Or three The prophets did not do Anything which would harm The delivery of the message That's the first thing Or any flaw in delivering the message The prophets did not endorse any sin Major or minor So any sin that they committed Would have been Something without premeditation and without thought and without endorsement. Not something like, Oh, let me think about how I'm gonna disobey Allah in this. Something that was without premeditation and was not endorsed, was not thought about, was not approved of, was not encouraged. And thirdly, that whatever they fell into of sin would have to be would have to be the case that they instantly repented from it when they realized that they had done something wrong. And this is where we can understand. So for example, we are told about some things that the Prophet ﷺ did that Allah rebuked him for. For example, Abbas wa Did the Prophet ﷺ deliberately turn away from that person knowing that it would displease Allah? Never. Rather he did so mistakenly thinking that this was what was deserving at that time, this was from the awlawiyata. I have to deal with this person, not to deal with this person. When Allah revealed this ayah, what did the Prophet wasallam do? Did he endorse what he did and approve of it? Or did he repent from it? He repented from it and he discouraged people from doing the same. And this is the situation of the Prophets. And the sins that the Prophets fell into are mentioned so many in so many places in the Qur'an. You cannot say the prophets did not fall into sins Because to say this then you, you have ayah after ayah after ayah Of the Quran talking about this You have ayat talking about That you are forgiven for the sins you committed In the beginning and the sins you committed in the end But how do you understand this? First of all, no prophet endorsed sin No prophet ever said this is a good thing Or this is, you should do this and no prophet deliberately disobeys Allah While he sits and thinks, I'm going to disobey Allah like this Rather inadvertently and accidentally They decide to do something Which is, it is a mistake And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not leave it Allah doesn't leave it Allah has to send revelation to explain to us that it was wrong And it has to be accompanied with repentance And that repentance raises the rank of that prophet Higher than that Prophet was before he committed the sin. And that is why David was better after his repentance than before his sin. Because that sin only raised his rank when he repented rather than lowering his rank in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As regards repentance, we can read about this in the uh, later on, insha'Allah ta'ala, from home. But we want to understand something important, generally, about repentance. Just so that we can get a good grasp of what repentance is. Repentance in Arabic, the original meaning of repentance, of a tawbah, is a nedb, regret. The original meaning of tawbah is regret. So the essence of tawbah is regretting what you have done. If you don't feel regrets that you have istighfar Istighfar is asking Allah to conceal the faults Conceal the problems When you make istighfar and you say Astaghfirullah You're asking Allah to conceal Cover it up Cover it up Don't make me have a bad consequences Because of the sin that I did You may feel regret You may not feel regret You may feel yeah, like I shouldn't have done it But you don't feel really sorry but you still ask Allah to cover it up Rabbi Fiddli, Allah forgive me, cover it up This is the meaning of al-ghufran To be, to Ghufran is to Cover up the sin And cover up the consequences But tawbah is something much Much deeper than that In tawbah you feel Really dis, real, You don't know, sort of Dislike and regret for what you have done You don't do it again. You stop doing it. You make an intention not to do it again and you make up for the harm that you have caused. This is the essence of Tawbah. And deeds are by their conclusion, which is the next section we want to just highlight, is that your deeds are judged by their khawatim, how you end them, how you conclude them. Your deeds are By their endings <laughs> 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 Allah loves those Who turn to him in repentance And loves those who purify Themselves And Sheikh Islam mentions this rahimullah ta'ala, In response to the Christian belief That if you sin You lose the love of Allah In this 2.16, Allah loves those who repent As for your sin, I have forgiven it But as for love, this will never return This is not authentic Because Allah, azzawajal Loves those who repent to him Yes, when you commit a sin You lose some of that You lose some of your iman And some of the love of Allah And some of the The, wilayah, the, the connection that you have with Allah
1: But when you repent
2: It comes back and more With it. We only have a few more minutes. True repentance involves a person changing himself. We've mentioned this already. We just want to touch upon some of the points in the later chapters. So, chapter 3. Does the mere acknowledgement of sin lead to its forgiveness or is something else required? The answer is with regard to the question does the mere acknowledgement of sin combined with Tawheed lead to its forgiveness and the alleviation of difficulty or is something else required? We answer by saying what leads to forgiveness of sins along with Tawheed is repentance. Repentance. For example, Allah will not forgive shirk unless it is repented from, as Allah said, Inna Allah wa ma yasha. Allah does not forgive anything being associated with him, but he forgives whoever he wills for anything other than that. Any sin other than shirk is forgiven if repented from, but if not, it's up to Allah. If he wishes, he will forgive it, and if he wishes, he will not. So We now have the sins divided into two Shirk And everything else With regard to shirk You have to do two things You have to bring Tawheed in place of shirk And you have to bring Tawbah in place of The sin As for everything less than that If you make Tawbah Allah will forgive you And if you don't make Tawbah It is up to Allah If Allah wills he will forgive, and if Allah wills, He will punish. And it's also important to note that some of the punishment will be carried out upon some of the people. Because Allah's promise is true. Allah's promise is true. In <inaudible> The promise of Allah is true, and therefore the punishment must be carried out upon at least a subset of people. Much of this uh, we have uh, mentioned But it's worth just going over the last paragraph or two. This discussion on repentance has been expounded in detail elsewhere. As for acknowledging one's sin in submissiveness to Allah, but without the intent to abandon it, this is asking for forgiveness and not repentance. This is istighfar and not tawbah. Because what is istighfar? Cover it up. What is tawbah? I feel genuinely sorry and I'm going to stop doing it. This is like a person who asks Allah to forgive his sin but has not repented from it. One cannot be certain of his forgiveness because he is in, the per, he is in a situation where he's just making a supplication. It is established that the Prophet ﷺ said there is no supplicant who supplicates for something that does not contain sin or the breaking of kinship except that one of three things occur. Either... It is answered in this life. That's number one. Or he gets the likes of it in reward. That's number two. Or the equivalent evil is removed from him. They said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, what if we frequently supplicate? Okay, so I said, O oh, Allah, enrich me. And Allah just removed an evil from me. So what happens if I say again, O oh, Allah, enrich me? Now Allah is going to give more. What happens again? Allah is going to give more What happens if I make dua again? Allah is going to give more So each time, either I get it answered in this life Or I get the reward of it Or the equivalent evil is taken away And Allah continues to give increase The likes of this supplication could lead to forgiveness Or it could lead to some other good Or the aversion of some evil And it brings about benefit And this is true of all supplications And Every supplication brings you benefit Those among the scholars who said Asking for forgiveness while persisting in sin Is the repentance of liars Meaning the one who claims to have repented If such a person persists in sin It becomes clear he has not really repented But there is nothing wrong with asking Allah to forgive you If you still feel you haven't reached that level of true regret Because one way or another You're either going to get something out of it Even if you feel you haven't reached that true regret and what you may get out of it is, you may get that regret out of it You may actually get that you, you haven't got true regret yet in your heart And you're saying, Allah forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me And the true regret hasn't come there yet But it may be that the reward of that dua is that true regret begins to enter into your heart And so in all cases, it is something good Do we have a few minutes or are out of time? Three minutes. Okay. MashaAllah. Okay. Very quickly then. In chapter 4 we have a question. Does the acknowledgement of one sin lead to the elimination of many sins? Or do you have to think about every single sin for this to occur? And the sheikh answers this in a number of principles. The first principle is repentance for a particular sin is valid even if the person commits other sins. That's the first principle. The second principle, whoever repents from some sins and not others, what is repented from is forgiven and what is not repented from is not. The third principle, a person could bring to mind a specific sin and repent from it or could make an unrestricted repentance. In which case, it includes everything that he believes to be a sin. You will see dua that is unrestricted in repentance. And you'll see some that are very specific and restricted. So you could ask, Oh Allah, forgive me for X, Y, Z. Or you could say, Allahumma li dhanbi kulla. diqqahu wa jillah, awwalahu wa akhira. sirrahu wa alani. Oh Allah, forgive me for what? I have done that is the, 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 the hidden of it Or the, the, the sort of the, the fine of it You know the bits that you can't really see The small things you can't see And the big things that you know about and The things that, I, that are, seem small to me And the things that seem huge to me And the things I did before And the things I haven't yet done And the things I did in secret And the things I did in the open In which case This includes everything that you believe To be a sin. Everything that you believe to be a sin is included in it. Very, very quickly, in the last minute, why is it that relief comes after a person has given up all hope in creation, and how can they make their heart dependent upon Allah alone? The first paragraph we just want to quickly read is this one. It is only the will of Allah which necessitates the existence of all that he desires and whatever he wills is, and whatever he wills is not. As for, or whatever he doesn't will is not. As for anyone else, the fact that he may desire something does not make it happen. And the fact that he may, in fact anything he does not, he wants, only comes about due to things outside of his control. Someone who puts his hope in creation, it is his heart that desires something from that object. But the object of creation is unable to grant it Moreover this action is shirk That is meaning putting your hope in creation For something which only Allah can give you Not putting your hope in creation for something they can give you Like if I say brother can you help me lift that chair That's not shirk But asking Allah Asking creation for something that can only be given by Allah Azza wa If the servant were then to single out Allah Alone for worship, he would achieve the happiness in this life and the hereafter. And in this way, Allah proves the false nature of the fact that people, you know, Allah shows you, you went around chasing after people and you got nothing. And if you only made sincere dua to Allah and then did your best, Allah would give you what it is that you wanted. That is the, the summary of it.
1: As for the blessings
2: that are achieved by those who live by Tawheed, they are beyond description. And every believer has a portion of this according to their faith. This is important. Some people understand that Allah answering your dua is a binary thing. Either you, ha- either you are in a state where all of your dua is answered and everything Allah grants you, or you're in a state where Allah gives you nothing and doesn't answer anything. It's not like that. You have a portion of the wilaya of Allah Of being a wali of Allah A close person to Allah According to your iman The more iman you have The closer you reach Towards that position It's not the case that it's either yes or no Black or white Rather it is a shade of grey Which increases over time And insha'Allah We will conclude with that This is the reality of Islam With which Allah sent the messengers And for which the books were revealed And it is the essence of the Qur'an and, uh, actually, let us just, let us just, re- let us just uh, read this last paragraph. In some of the Judeo- Judeo-Christian narrations it's mentioned. Son of Adam, tribulation brings you and I together, whereas ease and luxury brings you and your soul together. There are many narrations carrying this meaning and experienced in reality by the believers. Every believer will be able to relate to what we just said. For what we have related is part of the spiritual experience that none can truly understand except those who have experienced it. People have differing levels of spiritual experience that which the believers experience when they make their tawheed for Allah alone and direct their attention to Him such that they make their religion sincerely for Him. They love Him and they love everything else for His sake. They place their reliance in Him and they declare their loyalty for His sake and enmity for His sake. They ask only of Him. They place their hope in him alone They fear only him They worship him and ask for his aid In all states they are with their Lord Without the interference of creation And with the creation Without the interference of desires Any desire has vanished In the face of what he desires What Allah desires And all love has vanished in the face of his love And all fear has vanished In the face of his fear And all hope has vanished in the face of his hope And none is invoked except him that which the believers experience cannot be truly grasped except for the one who actualizes the beloved, the above, and all believers do this to some extent. Because you can't be a Muslim unless you do this to a certain degree. But the more of it you do, and the closer you get to La ilaha illa anta subhanak, inni a tawheed and a tawbah, and the closer you get towards that. The more of this you actualize, and the more Allah Azza answers your dua and relieves your hardship, and this is the reality of Islam with which Allah sent the messengers, والسلام, for which the books were revealed, and it is the essence of the Quran, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, and all praise is due to Allah Azzawajal. With that we have concluded as best as I could. This very brief explanation of the du'a of Yunus However, every single one of you If you want to understand this properly You have to go back for the notes I did not print out or ask Kalima to print out this whole book So you could just go through like a paragraph here and a paragraph there We did it so that you can go through a little bit in the class And you can go home and really go through all of the details InshaAllah Ta'ala having heard the explanation of the most important points during the seminar. Inshallah ta'ala, we're going to take a break for Salatul Isha and Ustad abdurrahman Rahman will be with you for the story of Ayyub alayhi salam after the break and Allah Azza wa knows best.